0: Good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, it is absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous summer. I, w- I would just say, you know, we haven't, um, we haven't earned God's grace, but after the winter we have, we have earned this summer. we want to live into it. Thank you. I had one clap. One clap. One person's with me. Three people are with me. What a morning. Um, I bring you uh, greetings from the east and nearby Manhattan neighborhood called Chelsea, a land known for its above railroad park. You might have heard of it called the High Line. Uh, also, its converted Nabisco factory. We convert a lot of stuff in Chelsea. We're just always like renovating everything. There's countless art galleries, mostly full of contemporary pieces. I don't claim to understand at all. Um, but let's begin by turning our hearts toward ancient Rome. It's around the year 200, and another one of Rome's severe persecutions has broken out against those that are followers of what's called at this time the way. It's been known in our time as called Christians. The early Christians were called, they were followers of the way. Christians um, persecuted far and wide, and this persecution begins to reach all the way into North Africa, into a city called Carthage, where a woman named Vivia Perpetua, her image will be behind me, quite a charmer, Perpetua uh, has recently confessed Jesus as Lord, and she comes from an affluent family. And at this time, um, her family is freaking out because Rome had a desire to make sure that they put down, especially converts to the way, who were affluent because they didn't want these ideas to spread, not just within those on the social circles that were on the lower side, but especially on the wealthier side. They wanted to make sure those were extinguished as quick as possible. It's one thing to say Caesar is Lord it's another thing to say Jesus is Lord. If you ever wonder where that confession comes from, it comes from the first, the first century because if Jesus is Lord, guess who's not? And that kind of confession will get you killed. So that's kind of where we are to begin. And hearing of this and wanting to make an example of her, the empire takes Perpetua into custody. As it continues to go on, the court hearings followed, family passions flared. Her father kept pleading with her, don't abandon me to the approach to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother, your aunt. Think of your child. Give up your pride. You will destroy us all. But Perpetua would not yield. I'm a Christian, she kept saying. And she was then led off to her death. So moving at this point from the prison to the amphitheater, joyfully, With calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear, Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step as the beloved of God, as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. And then Perpetua began to sing a psalm. And that's where we're going to camp... This morning, I can't help but think that her psalm was a psalm of laments. In the community in which I pastor in Manhattan, we've been walking through the psalms this summer. And Psalm 13 was one that we landed on and really felt like there was something there for us. And so tonight, or this morning, we're going to explore this psalm of laments. And I want to ask your permission, if you don't mind, to just give me, give me permission to speak on some things that are actually like quite sensitive. Some things as a guest speaker that... Um, you know, I just feel like I'm taking quite liberty here, so I'd ask that you just uh, would permit me to do this and permit me to speak on things like sorrow and tragedy and pain just a little bit. Because here's the thing, if, if you grew up in the church, I don't know what your church experience is like, um, mine was, was mostly fantastic, but I would say about my church upbringing is that uh, I heard so little on the topic of pain and loss and tragedy and how to actually hold the amazing truth of God's faithfulness, the truth of the gospel of God's goodness and love, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain. It's, it's no wonder why so many teenagers go off to, to college and have no idea how to maintain their faith and flourish it. It's because we're not, at least I wasn't actually equipped to hold these two things at once. And as I began reading the Bible in my teenage years, I was astounded with how many of the pages were filled with stories of tragedy. I mean, you read the Bible and it's just tragedy after tragedy, particularly in the Old Testament. Stories where essentials like faith and hope like, weren't these optional attributes. They weren't like options for you if you were you know, to hang on. Like, they were actually things that were imperative realities for spiritual survival. The things like faith, they weren't these cognitive propositions that were lodged somewhere in your head of what you believed only. They were, it was actually practice that you had to have trust in God to deliver in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of pain. And we find that in the Psalms, the first 72 Psalms, nearly half of them are deliverance Psalms, half. In other words, the Psalms are riddled with the theme of God deliver me from this pain, from this tragedy, from this difficult circumstance. And here's what the Psalms give us. The Psalms give us permission to feel They give us permission to feel, and when you read them, what you read in the Psalms is kind of like theology being worked out in real time by real people, because if we're honest with ourselves, I don't know if there's been a time where perhaps you've heard the New Testament, you've heard Paul's letters, and you think to yourself like, hey, listen, that's really great for you, Paul, and I'm glad that you're so positive about your difficult circumstance, but I'm not actually with you in this moment. I'm not there yet. Wherever you've ended up, I'm sort of in the middle of processing this out and learning and and sitting in the force of my difficult circumstance. And what the Psalms give us is permission to feel. And so let's turn our attention to the reading of Scripture, which has been used generation after generation to transform us into greater resemblance in the image of Jesus. So let's give our attention to Psalm 13 as the Scripture is read. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and, give ans- consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I'm shaken, but I trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we give ourselves to, um, to the words that you have said from old, that you would make them new in our hearts. You'd make them fresh. That we know that the scripture is a living, breathing document that brings life into our souls when the Holy Spirit takes them from the past and deposits them into our present. And so, Lord, may we live into that reality this morning And may we hear from you. May we hear from you, God, not some guest speaker. May we hear from you. May you speak and whisper into our souls words of healing, words of hope, words of renewal. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the Psalms, uh, they follow this typical structure in the prayer of lament. There's a typical structure. Every time there's a prayer of lament, there's, there's a way in which the psalmist crafts it that helps us to sort of gain handles and, and to follow the psalmist in, the, in this moment. The language I'll use, because I sort of geek out about this stuff, is um, I use the language of like there's, an a- there's always an anguish at the beginning of the psalm and, where it's like real sincere and honest. It's not hedged. It's not some, somewhat like kind of glib and, and positive. There's actually like a raw anguish that the writer talks about. And then it moves into this moment from the anguish where there's a, like a legitimate ask In other words, I'm sitting in the anguish of this reality, and there's some things, God, that I want to position before you that would be really helpful for me in this moment if you could show up and deliver. And then there's this moment of the action, that it's not just relying on God to to move and to act and to move into our situation and break through, but there's a responsibility on our end to respond in a certain way as we move forward with God in the midst of uncertainty. So let's begin with the anguish. And with every single, with both the anguish, the ask, and the action, I want to propose at the end of them a call, I think, on our lives that the psalmist would prescribe. So the first one is the anguish. The anguish. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? So it's summer months. The cold has turned to warmth, the snow has given way to the sun, and the gray has turned to blue. And yet I know whenever I speak in any congregation, there is a certain amount of percentage of that congregation where no matter how amazing the weather is outside, the climate of your life has never felt darker and bleaker and colder. And maybe that's you, maybe that's not you. If there is one certainty in life, then we know, we know that at some point we will all be in a place of desperation a place of laments. And if lamentation isn't your present right now, the reality of it is it waits for you somewhere in your future. And that's not meant to be a downer. It's just being honest and realistic with the fact that we live in a broken and yet not fully restored world that we're waiting and longing for, believing Jesus is going to bring the final renewal of creation. And I would just say by way of confession, isn't it at times frustrating serving a God whose existence doesn't seem to revolve around resolving all of my immediate tension. Isn't that frustrating? Especially in sort of a me-centric, I'm the center of the universe, every option at my disposal. It's really frustrating. Serving a God who doesn't seem to always move as quickly as I want things to be resolved In my direction and sometimes god does sometimes it's an amazing breakthrough in that moment and things are resolved but oftentimes at least in my life there's been some sort of period of longing of anguish of waiting and in that tension in that tension that we feel we're often tempted to feel like perhaps god has left us all to ourselves right i mean after all your colleagues might say something like if god is all-powerful then why would we go through pain in the first place? I mean, this is what we hear all the time. And what the Psalter teaches, what the Psalms teaches is this, the presence of tension never equals the absence of God. The presence of tension never equals the absence of God. In nearly half of the 72 Psalms, that's what the Psalter is always trying to say through the anguish. And we struggle, at least I struggle, to truly believe this. I struggle to truly cling to this, especially in that moment of despair. In fact, what we find is that the presence of God, and many of you could attest to this, having gone through amazing traumatic experiences of the past and experiencing God's presence in the midst of it, we find that the presence of God is often most available in the midst of our tension. And I think what our tension brings out is a radical desperation where we know that like cheap solutions won't get us by anymore. And we actually are awakened to the awareness that God has perhaps been here the whole time. But it's in the tension that I truly long, I'm awakened to the reality that I actually really need God in this moment. God isn't like a compelling option. God's a necessity for me in this time. So I think that's one of the things that we learn through the Psalms, that the presence of God is often, we often become more aware that God is strangely very available in the midst of our despair. And this is what's called a paradox. Something that doesn't seem to be true, but really is. Because there are times in our life where our circumstances, they just simply mystify us. And times when God seems perfectly content to permit the ongoing reality of pain and tension in our lives for a period of time. And you see this in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul had what he called this thorn in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh, which we, we have no idea what that actually meant for him. We do know it was a nuisance. We do know it was some sort of tragedy. It was some sort of pain, some sort of discomfort. And he prayed three times, not like, you know, quick little prayers on the way out to sell some tents. But I think when he says he prayed three times, meaning he had three seasons where he labored. He labored in the anguish for its removal. And God said that my grace is sufficient for you. And he continued in the pain of that thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. There's a mystery to it. There's a paradox. And I would submit after 17 years of following Jesus, I am less convinced now more than ever that God means to make quick resolution to all of my tension. I think that's a really difficult thing for us to come to terms with. As one of the great preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, says, Sometimes I think Jesus, the call to Jesus, isn't a distancing us from uncertainty. It's often an invitation into it. I mean, we, we sort of know for those that have confessed Christ as Lord like Perpetua back in the year 200, you sort of know that when coming to Christ, the rain falls on everybody. The sun falls on everybody. That coming to Christ doesn't free you from pain. It doesn't relieve you from all of the uncertainties of life. Sometimes it baptizes you into it. It's kind of a strange way for that. And I'm not suggesting this morning that God is the author of pain because that's certainly not the case and I'll get into that in a few minutes. But that through unresolved tension, through unanswered questions, God seems to be using them to grow in us an identity that we were given when we received the grace of God for the first time. What I mean by that is this. When you first come to the gospel, that, that your identity is given by grace because of forgiveness of sins through the cross and the raising of Jesus from the dead and trusting in that as your identity, as your source of meaning, as, as, as sort of the story that we're invited into, that you no longer have to earn your identity. You don't have to work for it. It's not a negotiation. It's settled on the cross because of the, the price that Jesus paid for us. What we learn through that is that we are given a divine identity when we come to Christ, that we're redeemed, that we're renewed, we're justified, we're declared righteous because of Christ, not ourselves. But the reality of life is that the motion of life from that point on is to grow into that identity. There's a really big word for that in theological terms. It's called sanctification. And it's just a huge container word, which means the name God has placed on you, the calling you have on your life, is to begin by God's grace to grow into that name, that you might look more and more like Jesus every single year, In every single month, and every single day. It's not a call to perfection, that's not what I'm suggesting, but there's some way that tension and pain plays a part in our ongoing sanctification. And so like the refinement of silver, where all these most precious ingredients are always in it, right? But there are moments of despair that seem to burn off all that which once seemed so significant. But in moments of pain and tension, you realize like, all of the things that we used to find meaning in just suddenly seem so insignificant. It seems so trivial and superficial that moments of lament for you and for me, they have a funny way of reminding us what really matters. It's odd. Sigmund Freud says that if you want to understand something, look closely at it when it's broken. I think that's true. Certainly think that's true for us. What we discover is that lamentation is that mysterious place where your spiritual maturity will either flourish or it will fade. And it all depends on what source you run to in the moment of that tension. The psalmist speaks of this reality called soul pain. So did you catch that in the text? where he says about the pain in his soul. In other words, that this pain has moved beyond the surface. It's seeped into the deepest recesses of his being, and it pierces the soul. And I think what the psalmist, through his pain, is beginning to discern truly is whether his relationship with God can withstand hard times. There's something about tragedy that can be a teacher, a revealer. You know, a good friend of mine says, He claims that success has little to teach you after the age of 30. And it's not that he's opposed to success. He's actually quite successful himself. But he simply believes, and I think rightly so, that when you go through these things, when you go through these turmoils, these moments of anguish, you find out what you really are. And you can begin to discern who you really trust. And sometimes for the first time, you really... Know in whom you really believe, and that happens when life becomes really unpredictable, and it's no longer manageable. And cheap solutions—throwing money, throwing your talents, throwing—all ta- these things just there's a ceiling to them, and they no longer work for you anymore. That's the place I think the psalmist is in, and so I think our call, our call in anguish. What we are called to as a church in lament, and it's a tough one, it's this. It's to be faithful in pain. To be faithful in our pain. To be faithful to this relationship that we have with God when we go through hard times. And listen, this it sounds so easy, and it sounds, at the same time, so challenging because it's so easy to veer in all of the immediate solutions that seem to propose a solution to your deepest problem, yet we know over time they really don't satisfy, right? Now, what does this look like? What does it actually look like, AJ, that you're talking about, to be faithful in pain? What does that mean? It means this. It's really simple. It means this. It's simply continuing the conversation with God. It's continuing the dialogue. And I know some of you, this is sort of where you are, despite life's circumstances. Maybe this is it, where you're sort of hanging on by a thread to this mystery called God in this community called Church to this savior named Jesus. Because everything that you seem to be experiencing in life seems to be betraying the claim that God is faithful and that God is good and that God is present. And you're just ready to chuck it. You're ready to just sort of move on. I'm not asking you this morning to feel good about your situation. I don't think God is either. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm simply asking you in the faithfulness through your pain to continue the conversation, to continue the dialogue, the wrestle, the struggle. By the way, I don't know if you understand the name Israel, which was the tribes of God through whom the Messiah came. Its name means wrestle, means struggle. It's almost as if God was preparing his people that, by the way, when I covenant with you, it doesn't make all things easy in some ways, walking with God, it's going to complexify things and make it that much more challenging to truly trust my goodness because you live in a broken world. And you're gonna wanna be seduced into unbelief because of its brokenness. But hang in. Continue the conversation because I'm moving all things to renewal for those that will remain faithful. Here's the, th- here's the strange thing about this first part. Four times, four times the psalmist says, how long, how long? how long how long which i think is a euphemism for god what's your problem i think really that's what the psalmist is saying at this point point. and here's the thing in your anguish right now or your anguish to come i really think god can handle your complaint i guess one of the things i love about the rawness of the psalm is that god seems to be sort of a big boy God seems to be able to handle our complaints, you know, when our spirituality goes from just smiling all the time and acting like things are okay into a real struggle where we get really honest with God. And yet, despite the pain, the psalmist is committed to keep the conversation going. And I think that's what our call is this morning. And maybe that's all you needed to hear this morning, and that's it. That's the nugget and that's all that there is for you this morning, and that's enough. But that's a big step to just continue the dialogue in the anguish. We move into the second part of this psalm, the ask. In verse 3, it says, Consider and give answer to me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Now, there's three verbs in these that I think are important that the psalmist is asking God to consider these and act, act, God, move into my situation. He says, first of all, God, consider. In other words, God, be present and consider what I have to say, and please answer me. And then he says this, give light, because he's walking in this period of darkness. This idea of of, of consider, answer, and give light, asking God to respond and deliver. Now, I want to pull up a graph behind me, and this graph, I think, kind of spells out really simply I think the process that we go through, and the first is like this, we have this sort of anguish, right? This unresolved tension. And we're seeking this resolution, right? This, this, this relief from whatever that is, this breakthrough, this answer, whatever that might be for you. But then you have this moment in the middle, this sort of wilderness of darkness, of uncertainty, of trial, of tragedy, of pain, that we go through this sort of meaningful wilderness of self-discovery and some of you are there right now and we all eventually will be and I would submit that what you do in this moment what you do in this question mark in between this sort of ask and anguish and the resolution what you do in that moment significantly matters How you are in that moment and what you turn to in this moment significantly matters. In fact, you see people destroy their entire lives in this moment. You also see people become whom God says they already are in this moment. That's why I say it either flourishes or fades in so many ways, that this moment really matters. And I know we want to fast track it to the resolution, but the moment that we're in in the question mark, it really matters to whom we are becoming. And I think it, it, it begins to reveal whether or not your commitment to God is truly substantive or if it was just like a great idea when life was going well. It was just palatable when things were smooth, when it, when it was about what I get, when it was about what's for me, how things can go for me, but you move into tragedy and all of a sudden it becomes, are, do we really have a relationship here, God? Because we know that's true of all of our human relationships. We eventually have this in our relationships. Do we really have a relationship with God? Or have we just been kind of playing religion? You know, what I appreciate about the psalmist is his honest yearning for breakthrough. Notice, notice this. Notice he's not hoping for five simple strategies to life management. Notice he's not asking for three tips for a better life now. Or ten simple strategies for overcoming challenging obstacles. That's not what the psalmist is looking for here. There's a place for that, I suppose. But we're talking soul pain at this point where the onion is peeled back and, and it's like all the pain is seeping through the human experience into the depths of who we are. And in that place of such soul pain, he needs a breakthrough. That's what he's actually looking for here. That the psalmist is doing this. The psalmist is demanding the felt presence of God in the midst of, of despair. How many of you have heard of the, uh, the practice, it it's, it's, has a bit of a resurgence in recent days, a renaissance, if you will. Um, how many of you have heard of, of the practice of, of inner healing? Maybe you've heard of inner healing. Inner healing is a, a, a discipline that came uh, years, generations ago, and it's, it's recently found its way back uh, to ours. And it's, uh, it's this, And here's part of the process of inner healing. What, what it does is it pairs you with someone who's uh, trained in this way and, and very uh, discerning in this way to lead you into moments of your past that were wounding, to lead you into those times that have really wreaked havoc on, on your present. And it begins to sort of like this like tangled string, begin to sort of unwind that string in order for you to be freer towards your future and your present, to not be so um, so entangled and bound because of the experiences that you had growing up. Um, and we all have had them. And, and what, what one does who walks you through interhealing is they, want, part of the process is helping you to identify where God was in that moment. When that happened, when you got that diagnosis, when you heard that your friend fill in the blank, it's, it's that moment that someone walks you through Sort of understanding where was Jesus in this moment. And what we realize when you begin to do this with someone that is actually quite good at it is you realize you realize that God was there the whole time and identifies with you in solidarity with pain. And what inner teaching, inner healing teaches, is that the gift of God's presence is often, if not always, more valuable than the removal of pain. That there's a resource in awakening to the presence of God, that that presence has a power to redeem your pain. Now, what I'm saying is this. It doesn't rewrite your history, but God's presence does have the power to transform it. it God is not the author of your brokenness, but God is the redeeming editor of it. That's what inner healing teaches us. That's what it leads us into is the power of the presence of God in the midst of our pain. May we demand God's presence more than good answers. I, I think God wants us to be bold. I mean, I, I just think God gets tired of all the little asks that we make and avoid the big one because we don't want to trouble God or ask too much. I mean, there's something about being entitled, and, and that's not exactly pleasing. But to be bold, to be humbly bold and say, God, I need a breakthrough of your presence. I need you to go with me. I need to know you're here with me in this moment. I don't think the triune God is thinking, man, my creation is so needy. I'm so tired of them asking. I'm so tired of them wanting me to show up. I don't think that's what's going on. I mean, you even read in Moses saying, God, like, I'll, I'll go this. I'll, I'll walk in this journey of pain with these people but I need your presence to go with us. I'm not going to go, I can't go alone. Way too much self-doubt, way too much insecurity, way too many things I can't control. I actually need your presence to accompany me. We see this all throughout scripture. I mean, isn't that why we gather each week? Because God is alive, not dead. God is near, not distant. God brings hope, not despair. And, and what we find in that place is that God's presence mysteriously becomes our answer. And it has a way of quelling all of the waves of anxiety into a place where it might not all be resolved, but somehow you just know it's going to be okay, no matter what. We will get through this. This will be okay somehow. Somehow. I think possibly the highest compliment any visitor can give a congregation, and maybe you're here this morning for the first time. I mean, as a congregation, as even a pastor of a church, one of the highest compliments I think I could ever receive about my church would go something like this. Maybe about your church, it would read, you know, Renaissance may not have all the riddles of the universe solved, really because no one does, but the presence and joy of their God is with them. For someone from the outside to come in and to say, you know, their claim I may not yet believe, but their claim about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is really permanent, despite circumstantial uncertainty. They're just grounded in that claim that Jesus is Lord, like Perpetua, despite being hauled off to the amphitheater to be publicly martyred, singing a psalm on her way. So I think the call when it comes to the ask is to be faithful in petition to be faithful in petition to be persistent there's a reason why it's called a longing because it's long that's why it's called a longing to abide in it and if that's your cry this season if there's something on the tip of your heart that you're just longing for breakthrough i think the call is to not give up on it maybe it's a relationship going south maybe it's an overwhelming anxiety maybe it's cancer. I think the call of the psalmist would say, keep going, keep asking, keep seeking, because like the psalmist, abide in your petition. The psalms teach us how to pray when we don't have words to know how to pray. That's why I love this psalm. And the last part is the action. But I trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has belt, dealt bountifully with me. Now you notice when you get to the end of the psalm, nothing has changed circumstantially. There's no sort of asterisk between verse 4 and 5 that says, oh, by the way, like everything's great now, milk and cookies, and so let's just dance the night away. There's no asterisk there. He goes straight from the anguish to the ask and saying, but I'm going to take action on my own. I'm still waiting for God to deliver. And the psalmist says, "Trusted, he will rejoice, and he will sing that there's a response to God and faithfulness despite life's circumstances. And skeptics might say something like this. It's really nice and cute, but that's, that's shallow optimism. The psalmist is just not a very rooted and deep person to really like, understand the complexities of the human story. He's just being really naive and optimistic. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is a man who refuses to be seduced into unbelief. Because of circumstances. I think that's what's going on. A man who is resolved that he will not be seduced to disbelief because life isn't going exactly the way he thought it should. The psalmist is a worshiper who has declared, I think, in his own heart, that the character of the eternal God is not tethered to the circumstance of the transient moment. And he's able to hold two things together the challenge of life in the faithfulness of God. He's able to hold those two things in tension and to move forward in faithfulness. It's been said that the decision to trust God's faithfulness in the midst of despair is the most powerful theological concept in the the Psalms. And I think that's right. Because you and I come from a long, long, long lineage of perpetuas, A long lineage of brokenness, a lineage of anxiety, a lineage of despair, and yet a lineage of followers of God who were faithful in praise. And it's not because they were shallow and optimistic and naive. It's because they somehow knew that the future of all things is resurrection, is renewal, is restoration. Maybe not in our exact timeline, but that is the future of all things. And so we begin to live in light of that reality. I think that's what it means to be Christian. The call in this time For the psalmist for the action is to be faithful in praise it's why we gather it's why we sing in every season and i want to end with this question where is jesus in this psalm i wondered where in jesus life this lamentation would have been appropriate for him to utter in john 19 we read just before his betrayal and jesus knelt down and prayed saying father if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony and an anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, I think if Jesus would have written a psalm in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his betrayal, it would have been this one. This would have been the one, I think, that he would have cried. Because it was here that he found himself between anguish and and resolution he found himself in that middle space that wilderness that question mark that uncertainty of not really knowing how this was all going to shake out soul soul pain to the point of sweating blood and knowing that there was a cross to bear that was going to be heavy that was going to be wounding that was going to be painful and not knowing whether or not the Father's presence was going to be with him. So we ask, why did Jesus have to go through all this pain, this mystery, this uncertainty? We know from the back end, from where we sit today, it couldn't be because God didn't love him. And so we ask this morning, why do we go through pain? through mystery, through uncertainty. It can't be that God doesn't love us. I think it simply means that life is full of all kinds of surprises that end up resulting in eternal joy. We just have to be faithful to trust the mystery. The biblical term for this is called faith which in the Greek, the word pistis, it means trust, which is a hard thing for control addicts like you and maybe me, definitely me, maybe you, to really surrender to. We as a staff, we meditated on this psalm a few weeks ago and um, we crafted prayers at the end of it to start our staff meeting. And uh, I, I, I have a staff that's just full of like my spiritual heroes. Like, I don't even know why they let me teach. They're just amazing men and women of God. And one of, the, one of the women on our staff, she, uh, she crafted this prayer, which I just want to invite you to stand with me, uh, and I just want to lead us out with this prayer that she said, just to kind of cap this. And this might be exactly where you are. If you're in this season, I would just say, like, this is good medicine from someone that's living into this. This is a girl named Stephanie, who a few years ago fell six stories off a building onto her back and lived. Lost her eye, lost a finger, Was deemed most likely paralyzed, yet was amazingly healed through that. And here's what she, after a decade, a decade of brokenness moving toward healing, says I trust you. You have never placed a stone in my path that you do not plan a route around first. You've never left me at the bottom of the mountain, unequipped or alone. You've never marked one day in my history without your faithfulness. Your loving kindness floods my heart. Indeed, you have been good to me. Lord, I just thank you so much for um, my friends in this room, that we are the church across the world and how amazing it is to come 30 miles west and to meet with a body of Christ that is passionate about your name, passionate about your glory, passionate about the resurrection. And Lord, I just pray that you would give um, the gift of perseverance and faithfulness to this community to meet them in whatever trial that they find themselves in, whether it's now or whether it's two weeks from now, whether it's lurking two months from now and we don't even know it, but we're about to hit an issue in life that, that we, don't, we can't sort our way through in our own, our own gifts and talents, our own resources. So God, would you recall this psalm into our heart? May it be seared into our soul that we may know in the right time to pray with the Psalms, to pray with the saints that have gone before us, and to join a long lineage of people that experienced brokenness, yet believed in renewal. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. It's a joy to uh, to be with you, and uh, I'm asked to dismiss you on your way out the door.